HP's Population Health IT solutions are creating convenience and choice for providers and patients. Building on over 50 years in health and life sciences, HP is delivering end-to-end solutions for remote care and in-home monitoring. Supporting the transition to home, chronic disease management, medication adherence, health education, and remote clinical trial monitoring. HP Fit Solutions, your single source for cost-effective, technology-enabled, remote care solutions, and financing services. Visit www.hp.com go slash healthcare. That's www.hp.com go slash healthcare for more details. Welcome back to the podcast. Saul Marquez here. And on today's episode of the Population Health Series sponsored by HP, we are privileged to share the thoughts and uh, passions of, of uh, Dr. Chris Gibbons. He's the Chief Health Innovation Advisor to the Federal Communications Commission's Connect to Health Task Force. He's also the founder and CEO of the Greystone Group, a digital health innovation company and an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Health Sciences and Informatics at Johns Hopkins. Previously, Dr. Gibbons was an associate director of the Johns Hopkins Urban Health Institute and an assistant professor of medicine, public health, and health informatics at Johns Hopkins University. He is a published author and international speaker who's authored over 75 books book chapters, research manuscripts, monographs, and technical reports. Dr. Gibbons obtained his medical degree from the University of Alabama and then completed residency training in preventive medicine, basic science research fellowship, and a master's of public health degree from Johns Hopkins. In today's interview, we dive into health technology and population health, but specifically explore the ideas of smart communities and how to best integrate technology to to deploy population health strategies. I'm excited to share this interview with everybody. Hope you enjoy it. And again, uh, appreciate the opportunity to, to do this alongside HP population health solutions. So excited for you guys to listen. And here we go. Such a privilege to have Chris, Dr. Chris Gibbons here on the podcast today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So there's so many interesting things happening in healthcare. Dr. Gibbons, you you cover such a broad, broad spectrum of, of, of things focused on digital health innovation, uh, very honed into the patient and really looking at you know uh, public health. So we're going to cover a lot of great things together. But before we do that today, I'd love to hear more about what inspires your work in healthcare. Yeah, thanks for asking. It's a it's a really great question. You know, over the years, I've developed for myself a, a personal vision: what the future look like if I'm able to accomplish. Uh, uh, what I want to do. And my personal vision is really one of making a difference in health in my lifetime. Um, and this is not to criticize anybody else. Some people, particularly scientists, do work that they hope at some point in the future will make a difference. Sometimes that's 100 years or, or more by adding to the body of science. And that's great. It's important. But I've chosen for myself a vision to make a difference in the lives of people in the area of health before I die. That's what I really want to do. And, and quite frankly, not just for the rich and famous who have a lot of money and can get it whatever they want, but really for the middle class and for 
those that don't have a lot of money and not don't have a lot of people helping them. If I can make a, a difference in their lives, particularly in their health in my lifetime, that's what gets me up every day and keeps me up at night. Wow, that's powerful. And there's nothing like a like a good timeline, right? And and uh <laughs> It's important to be to be unrealistic sometimes to drive change. I mean, I'm not saying you're unrealistic, but what I'm saying is I love your 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 passion and your short timeline. Yeah, you know, it is easy for some people to see something like that as unrealistic. And I'll be honest, in the early days, I thought uh, it was unrealistic. But over the years, I've I've learned so much. There there are people who like you may never have heard of before, like a guy named Tony Hansberry who is a young African-American boy who at the age of 15 developed a new surgical procedure that surgeons are actually using today. At the age of 15, uh, still in high school. And Kelvin Doe, a young man born in Sierra Leone in abject poverty. The whole country is a very poor country and he's lived there, but he taught himself electronics. And then he used literally things that were thrown away, old electronics, radios, things that people no longer wanted, were no longer even usable to create first a light bulb and then a radio, a working radio and bringing electricity to his. And now, you know, he was identified and brought over to MIT. I mean, these, these kids with so little accomplishing what most people would say is impossible. And I say to myself, if, if they can do that, I've been privileged to have, you know, what some might consider a world-class education and work at some of the best healthcare institutions in the country or in the world, I, I ought to be able to accomplish something that maybe some people or maybe even myself think is impossible. And I just believe that there are many other Tony Hansberries and Kelvin Doe's out there. And if they can be inspired and given opportunities with their health and others, they can change the world. And so every day I'm working to inspire and working to improve opportunities for health for everyone. I love it. I love it. And and I and I am inspired right now just with your energy and, and your conviction. And, uh, you know, like that quote says, it's uh, unreasonable people are the ones that change yeah. the world. Yeah. And uh, we need exactly. more of that. So I love that you're here. So tell me about you and, and what you're in your work, you know, how are you doing to add value to the ecosystem? You're, you're an author or you're a physician, you do so much, but tell me how exactly you believe is, is your, you know, biggest contribution of your work and how, how that's impacting yeah, health. Sure. Thanks. So healthcare, as we all know, has some really serious and intractable problems. I mean, we do some amazing things. We save lives of millions of people every year. So healthcare does some amazingly wonderful things. At the same time, it has some serious problems. Those amazing things don't reach everyone equally. There are many who cannot access those things uh, virtually at all or not often. And even for those who can access them, the system often doesn't work well for them. You've probably heard, as I've heard many of the uh, leaders, particularly in the tech world, that are that are driving diving into healthcare now. Um, people who like who lead Google and and Apple and other places talk yes. about you know how they have had bad experiences with the healthcare system, and they should be able they can afford anything. And so, what as I've looked at these uh, problems from being on the inside working 
in healthcare and realizing what everybody else is realizing that we are not making a lot of progress in fixing some of these large intractable problems. I got to the point where I said, you know what? Well, I think we need to apply the definition of insanity here. If we're going to keep doing the same old thing and expecting different results, we're, we're not going anywhere. And so I challenged myself to start looking at things differently and trying to come up with, with ideas and solutions and that perhaps others were overlooking because, at least in my view, most of the approaches that come from within the healthcare sector are only at best incremental improvements over what we're doing and not really helping us get to where we need to go. So we at our company are thinking beyond traditional boundaries in the health sector. We're challenging long-held norms within healthcare. We're learning from other sectors. That's something that the healthcare system historically has not done. Healthcare sort of prides itself on teaching others, but being more complicated or more technical than other sectors. And so other sectors learn from us. We don't learn from them. Well, we're taking a very opposite approach. We think there's a lot you can learn from other sectors and then apply to healthcare and overcome some challenges that others have experienced. And so we're learning from other sectors. We're applying insights to health and we're creating new visions of health and care delivery in a way to help us overcome these historic challenges and create opportunities for new advances in ways that, uh, quite frankly, uh, were not previously possible. This is fantastic. So as we think about what makes what you do different or better than what's available, I'd love to take a dive into that and talk to us about that from the perspective of either you as a physician or with the company that you that you run. Yeah. And, you know, they both they blend together. I mean, who I am and what I do to the company are kind of one in the same in large part. I think, so what makes us different than, than what's out there today? Maybe three or four things. I'd say one, we're not afraid to fail. And in fact, over the years, we failed a lot. I failed personally. My company has failed in a few things. But I think if you're not afraid to fail, you're never going to accomplish anything that is significantly uh, different than what we've been doing before. None of us have the ability to see the future. None of us have the ability to predict the future or know what's going to work. So if we play it safe all the time, we're never going to try something that might not work in the quest for something that will work better. Mm -hmm. And so we're not afraid to fail, and we use it as a learning point. Uh, I think it was Thomas Edison who said he tried to make a light bulb and failed 10,000 times. And a reporter asked him one day about that. He said, well, I, I didn't fail. I just found 10,000 ways where, in which it wouldn't work. And he just kept going. And so we, we have that same attitude. I, I think second thing is we seek opportunities really in areas deemed worthless or impossible by others. I mean, that's not to say that you can't have other kinds of things, but I think at least in some of the areas where other people aren't looking, there's gold to be found. There's diamonds to be found. But because we believe it's not there, we don't look. And again, I go back to Tony Hansberry and, and Kelvin Doe. Nobody's going to look to Sierra Leone to come up with anything astounding for the world. Nobody thinks a 15-year-old could do something that could change medical practice, yet they both did. So we tend to look in areas and in populations and in uh, solutions that others are not typically working. And that, that's another reason why we fail a lot, but when we succeed, tends to be much bigger successes. Um, I think third, we have a uniquely diverse 
highly trained team of experts, all Johns Hopkins uh, trained, finally, we, we simply don't give up. We, we're just not going to, I just refuse to accept the notion that this can't be improved or this can't be changed or some people can't do X or Y. We, we just simply won't give up. And, uh, you know, I think those things make us unique and we've been able to accomplish some things using that formula and we're proud of it. Yeah, that's brilliant. So a lot of what we've discussed so far has been really around perspective and, and mindset and culture and, and values, right, that, that drive your work. I'd love to just hone in a little bit on maybe, on maybe some care points or particular areas that you guys are, are looking to influence or, or make a difference in. Would you, would you care to touch on anything in there? Yeah, uh, so I can tell you some of the things that we have done, maybe one or two things we're doing, and maybe something we're hoping to do in the future. Sounds great. We have, through the work that I have done personally, either through Hopkins or through the company, we really pushed science in general to new heights and how scientists look at the world around us and populations. Several years ago, we published a paper that had a new concept in it that I thought was not going to go anywhere and was going to get ridiculed, but it's actually taken off. And that's when we called it populomic. We were already envisioning the role of computers and, and technology to be prominent. And we, we said, you know what? I looked at other sectors and computer technology absolutely revolized, revolutionized other sectors outside of the healthcare system. And I said, there's no reason to believe that it won't do that in the health sector as well, not just in medical practice, but in public health and other ways. And I said, if we embrace this early, we might be able to create whole new ways of looking at things, of analyzing things. And we came up with this term populomics as a fusion of population sciences, medicine, and informatics, and postulated that it's relying heavily on technology, but enabling us to go to places where we couldn't go before. And although we didn't call it such, it, we really believe, we, we've published several papers about it, the theoretic basis, et cetera, et cetera. We believe it formed the foundation for a lot of what's called precision medicine now, and precision public health, even AI in healthcare. And there are many people at places like NIH and others who allotted this as, a, as an advance. So we've pushed the science in some ways to, to new heights, as we've suggested here. We've pushed medical practice. Um, one of the things that I did during my full-time time at, at Johns Hopkins was to find a way to integrate what's commonly known now as community health workers uh, as an integrated part of a medical team. I wasn't the first person to explore community health workers. I wasn't the first person to even use them to help deliver care to patients. I think we were among the first to really integrate them into the medical care team at a tertiary academic medical center such as Johns Hopkins. And that was no small undertaking. And now that I'm no longer running that program, those programs and those workers are still going forward, still being utilized and expanding because the system, because the outcomes of patients are being improved by it. And so we push medical practice beyond typically just looking at medical professionals and using them within the care team. We've EMR design. Some of the early work we did in the company, you know, really said, hey, you actually can make these EMRs better. Not because I say it's better, but again, we went to the literature that most in healthcare were ignoring and didn't know about. We went to the computer science and human factors and ergonomics uh, literature and wrote reports, federal reports that are out there and available now. It said, hey, if you learn something about 
how to design computers from the guys who've been doing it for a while, you can design these things much better. And so we got a lot of interest in those those things. So those are some of the things that we've done uh, in the past. Right now, we are working on something that we think is very exciting. Most people within the healthcare sector who are thinking about and working in the space of innovation and um, trying to improve things are working from the perspective of trying to improve uh, medical care or the practice or what doctors and nurses do. Terribly important. I'm all for it. I get it. I'm a doc. So that's important. However, again, sort of thinking the way I do, I think that as the work that we've done leads us to believe that there are at least two other ways that technology could help us improve the healthcare sector beyond medical practice. And the more work that I do in this area, I'm beginning to believe, and I think a growing number of people are also, that these other areas at least one of them, but maybe both of them, or even the impact they could have is even bigger than the impact you can have by changing what doctors do. And so those other two areas are the patient experience in healthcare, and the third one is the organization and delivery of healthcare aside from what doctors do. So where is healthcare being delivered? When is it being delivered? How is it being delivered? I think in some ways is going to impact healthcare much more than the advances that we make with medical practice. And some of this is becoming obvious now. In the early days when I started talking about this, it was harder for people to see. But now we're seeing healthcare not just happen in clinics and in doctor's offices and in hospitals, but we're seeing them happening in retail stores like CVS and like Walgreens. And we're hearing in Walmart, exactly. And we're hearing Amazon just launching a totally virtual clinic. There is no brick and mortar anywhere and you never get sent to any brick and mortar anywhere. Now, Mm -hmm. in none of those cases are those companies changing what doctors do in terms of diagnosis and screening and but they are changing how it's being delivered, where it's happening, when it's happening, and that is having a profound impact on what doctors do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so we believe that this area is going to continue to expand in very significant ways. And one of the one of the ways that we can talk about later that I think is going to be extremely important to this is what we're calling smart care and smart cities and how they come together and impact the organization and delivery of care and ultimately what doctors do. And then ultimately, the last thing I'll mention is in the future, we believe that our work will have some impact on not just the organization and delivery of care, not just the practice of care and patient experience, but even the financing of healthcare. And that's been the holy grail, right? That's been the hardest thing to change in healthcare. And I'll just say this, um, it is my belief that in the future, it is possible. I don't know for sure if it will happen, but I can see that we're already moving in that direction and that some of the things that we do might contribute to that. Today, health insurance is the primary way that most healthcare is paid for. Mm-hmm. I think that may well change. That may well change in the future. I'm not suggesting that health insurance will go where, away entirely. Where, where would it shift to? Well, I, thoughts? let me give you an example of what's already happening. We don't even have to talk about what I think. 
So since the day medicine was born back whenever that was, until just about a couple years or a year and a half ago, if you needed, if you were having heart problems and needed a basic test that every cardiologist and many primary care doctors do to evaluate your heart, that's the EKG, you had to go to a hospital, a doctor's office, or a clinic of some kind. Mm-hmm. The technicians would put the 12 leads on your on your body, on your chest, and on your legs or thighs. They would turn the machine on, the strip would run. That strip would then be given to the doctor to read and evaluate. And you would be called back in or told right then what they found and uh, go forward. The insurance company would be billed. The doctor would get a portion of that. The hospital gets a portion of that. The technician gets paid, all that kind of right. stuff. That was the only way you could get that done from the day medicine was born and that that was invented until recently. Today, we have an Apple Watch that according to the FDA, not according to me, but according to the FDA, can give you an EKG tracing that is equivalent. It's an FDA-approved EKG tracing through your Apple Watch simply by pressing the button anytime you want to. No insurance company involved at all. Apple is getting paid. That's taking that that is that is taking money right off the table of healthcare and putting it into the pockets of Apple already happened. In this in this particular situation, Dr. Gibbons, it's very interesting. So I just want to pause there for a second because you mentioned a lot of really interesting things, a lot of really interesting ideas, areas of care that you guys are impacting. And in this particular example with EKG, they're really not, I guess they're adding this value, but they're not actually charging for it, are they? Or they're just charging for the device. You you, you asked me how things are changing. Exactly. They're not charging today. Got They're it, not charging it. today, but they get paid when you buy the watch. Absolutely. So they are Absolutely. getting paid for it, right? So, <laughs> yes. so I'm saying new models of care lead to new opportunities for financing the care that's delivered through the new models of care. And you, they don't need insurance. They're getting paid enough through when you, how, the price point of the watch that justifies them doing it. Now, tomorrow they may go to CMS and say, hey, we need to be paid for, for these EKGs. That would be a bonus, right? And right. It's going to be hard to argue that that EKG is any different than the one that's also FDA approved that we do in the doctor's office. So I don't know how healthcare is going to deal with that. And then, and then if they do approve it, do you do you get paid? Does Apple get paid every time you press the button, or once a day, or how does that work? I don't know. It's a big problem. They'll have to deal with it. But the point is, <laughs> yeah. Apple is getting paid for something that only physicians in the healthcare system used to do, and it's not involving health insurance yeah. right now. No, that's interesting. Interesting. I love that perspective. And folks, you're listening to this and you're like, wow, that's actually a really good point. I feel the same way. (laughs) So Chris, you know, we think about, I mean, even today, right? Like I look at my cell phone and I forget what book it was. I think the book was called Bold, but they had a, a spreadsheet and there was a list of items, a camera, a calculator, a word processor, all these things, right? And it says back in the day, if you bought all these things separately, it would be like, you know, something like $5,000 right. or even more. It was like $50,000. And today it's all on your phone. That's and right. That's right. You know, it's just like, and, and so what, what is the future? Software is eating healthcare. Is that what's happening? <laughs> <laughs> well, there are a lot of people that are afraid that that's what's going to happen. I think my position is that 
software and hardware, but software is yeah. definitely going to change medicine. There's no question about that. Sure. There's no way to avoid it. Look at every other sector in which technology and software hardware has come into play. It's absolutely revolutionized those industries. And the biggest thing has changed is the business models in those industries. Yeah. Why do we think that's not going to happen in healthcare? It's actually, I think, ridiculous to think that it won't. When we look at every other health, every other sector, and it has happened. So given that, I think at a minimum, it is at least worth our while to figure out, figure it out. So things will change. Yes, yes. things will change. But you will still need people in the new world. You will still need doctors in the new world. They'll just be doing different things. So the idea that, you know, all doctors will need to go away because the AI computer will do it, I don't think is, a, is the right way of looking at it. Who's going to develop the algorithms for the AI? Who's going to be overseeing things with, that don't fit in, you know, nicely into the algorithms that are there? There are many new opportunities and new jobs and new things that doctors, nurses, and other medical professionals who used to do different things can do and will be needed to do. So it'll be a change, but I don't know if that it will mean that we don't need doctors anymore. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. What would you say is, is one of the biggest setbacks you've experienced and what was the key learning out of that? Yeah, I've had a lot of them. I think one is, uh, so while I, I was the associate director of the Urban Health Institute at Johns Hopkins for almost 15 years. And during that time, I was leading some programs to develop and come up with new models of care to help people living in the urban inner city, obviously very poor, magic poverty, poor health outcomes. And at first I was both daunted and excited to take on this challenge. No one else had really, uh, they, they, this was a new position. So no one else had formally, you know, had a similar position like this. And I said, well, you know, we got to start and go out and talk to people in the community and sort of get their perspectives. And as I began to do that, two things happened. One, at first there was excitement by many of the people that were in the community. We were largely African-American. And, and if you can't tell already, I'm African-American too. So they were excited because usually if someone did come out to talk to them, it wasn't an African-American, right? Yeah. And so they said, wow, this is great. This is great. So that felt good. But the second part was, you know, I was there to do my best to make a difference, to help fix it. And I had some ideas. Some of them were right. Some of them were wrong. But what uh, some, not all, some of the people saw this as their opportunity to get back at the system that had been doing them wrong. Mm. And now they saw it as one of them there so that I would help them get back at the system that had done them wrong. But that wasn't why I was there. That was not what I was going to do. And it's not what I did. And so those same people that I was trying to help, some of them rejected me. And that was very hard for me because mm -hmm. I said, wait a minute, I'm one of you. I'm trying to help you. But we can't do things that we all know aren't right and won't get us there. But that took me for a loop for a while, but I still was in that position. I still was committed to trying to figure out how to make a change. And so it helped me both mature and look at problems differently and, and look at and try to strategize and how to overcome what seems to be intractable failure and or barriers that are not going to go. Now I've got people fighting against me, the very people who I'm trying to help and in some cases have some solutions for. They're rejecting them, not because they're bad, but it's because of me and I'm not doing what they want me to do. So yeah. That was a very formative area of my life and helped me sort of think through and approach challenges and seeing things that other people couldn't see and really has changed the rest 
of my career since then. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when you get surprised with sort of one expectation, something different happens, uh, how you react and what you do really makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So as you think about today, Dr. Gibbons, what would you say is the most exciting thing that you're working on? What are you most excited about? Wow, great question. There are a lot of things that excite me these days. I think the opportunity, the potential of technology and healthcare at a high level is something that excites me. But even within that, even within that excitement, we have a potential challenge. If the benefits that we believe can be attributed to advances in technology are not evenly distributed in society, then we could have a situation where some parts of the population are benefiting more than the others or benefiting and the other part isn't benefiting. And so that some of the same problems we have now will have and maybe even get bigger in this new world if we don't find ways to enable everyone to benefit from what advances in technology have to offer. So the challenge is still before us. And so I've been thinking about this for a long time. And one of the ways that I think that we can address this problem, and I've become very excited about it, is by a concept that's been out there a little bit, but but by modifying it a little bit. And this is the notion of smart city. Mm-hmm. So a smart city, there are many definitions for them all across the world, no unified sort of definition, but the things that sort of characterize them is, is that there is a notion that there would be a widespread availability of internet broadband connections to all the residents who live in that area. And it doesn't have to just be a city, it can be a community, it can be a rural area, it can be anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but that broadband internet is available to everyone in the area and that services then be delivered through those services. It could be government services, it could be all kinds of variety of things. Well, I think that that, that's a powerful concept. Now, I've looked at many of the smart cities uh, proposals and things that are going on around the world. Most of them do not consider yet, because it's relatively new, don't focus on health explicitly in any significant detail. There are a number that do mention wellness or health, but it's very superficial, at least as, as best I can tell, in how they are attacking health. They focus on, you know, transportation pretty heavily. They focus on carbon footprint pretty heavily. They focus on delivering government services efficiently pretty heavily, lighting, those kinds of things. But when it comes to health and healthcare, it's much more superficial, at least in my view. But I think the potential not just for smart cities in those areas, but smart cities for health and through the mechanism, a term that we, again, the model that we developed called smart care is actually profound. If you take the model to be what it is, that we will set up a situation where everybody has access to broadband in that live in the city, then you have, as a starting point, then you have just solved probably the single biggest barrier to some people benefiting from what technology has to offer. Because you can have a smartphone, but if you don't have, a, are able to afford or, or can connect to the internet, that smartphone is a dumb phone. 
It can't do anything yeah. for you. It's not. It's really not the phone that's the innovation, the greatest innovation. It's the broadband networks that it connects to and the apps that flow over it, essentially. And that's often the hardest part, whether you're talking about rural communities or you're talking about inner city urban communities, they just can't afford or don't have access to uh, reliable broadband network networks. I've been all over this country and I've seen in low-income rural and urban areas where kids, you know, education is going online now. You don't turn in paper and pencil homework, you submit it online. Well, there are kids that will stay on the bus just riding the bus until it's night, nighttime, and the bus has to be parked because that's the only place they get internet or sitting outside on the ground in front of their school because they can catch the Wi-Fi that's coming out of the school to try to do their homework before it gets dark because they can't afford it at home. So if you start with a smart cities foundation, that is, i.e. getting broadband networks available to everyone, you solve the single biggest problem right there. The next thing is then how do we get everybody connected to it and how do we how do we deliver the services they need to improve their health? And so I think that a tremendous opportunity going forward is to bring healthcare into the smart cities arena in a very significant way, number one, and then start building services, not just medical care and clinical care services, but all the types of services that people may need to get healthy and stay well. Social mm-hmm. services, just a whole variety. We have the opportunity, we have the ability to do that right now. We are standing for the first time in the history of the world, probably, where we can eliminate the problem of the hard to reach. We can reach just about everybody through technology. Even the poorest countries in the world have leapfrogged and now offer wireless technologies to most of their residents. So we can reach you. We just have to now figure out what to do with you in order to help you improve your health. And the answer, again, is not just going to be go to a clinic. It's going to be services that are going to be delivered 24-7 on demand at the point of need, wherever that patient is. And that's what we call smart care. We've got some work that we're doing in this area. So this is the thing that's exciting me now. And we are working with a group to begin talking on working with a, a group to stand up the first smart care, smart city community, which is very, very exciting. That's very exciting. And, and it goes back to the where, when, and how that we started off the conversation with, right? Yep. And Chris, it's, it's, um, I just keep thinking about this. I mean, it doesn't have to be difficult. I mean, a gigabit connection is 80 bucks a month. Why, why can't you just prescribe it and have Medicare, Medicaid fund it? I mean, it's nothing compared I to think, the I think billions. you're hitting the nail right on the head there. Once you have a vision of what needs to happen, then you can think about ways to do it. And all of a sudden, wow, there are a number of ways we could actually do this. Yeah. Right. But if you believe it's not possible, you're not even thinking about that. And that is one way it could be done. I can think of at least three or four others. But the point is, it's not going to happen unless we begin to have the vision for it and start working towards it. Love it. What a great conversation with Dr. Gibbons today. I know if, if you're not thinking about the future, maybe you weren't listening. <laughs> Just hit the rewind button and you'll be able to, to get some of the tidbits that we, we touched on with Chris. It, it just incredible thought leader in the space. And it's very exciting to, to hear that physicians like him are working to improve access, build smarter communities, and really help advance our healthcare system in our lifetime. 
not <laughs> in the next lifetime. What's your favorite book, Chris? Uh, that's, that's a tough one. I got several, but I think it, 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 with respect to this conversation, it's probably The Innovator's Dilemma by Clay Christensen uh, that many people have read. And unfortunately, he died last week, which is, uh, yeah. which is unfortunate. But that book is truly transformational in my life and undergirds all that I think about and all that I do in healthcare now. What a great recommendation there. And Chris, this has just been uh, an enlightening conversation. I appreciate the work that you do and, and the difference that you're making. Before we conclude, I, I'd love if you could just share a closing thought with the listeners and the best place that they could reach out to you if they want to continue the conversation. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I heard a comment, a quote sometimes, and honestly, I've forgotten who said it, so I'm not trying to take any attribution from anybody, but it says that everything is impossible until the first person does it. And that's what that's what we're trying to do. And we believe that a lot more is possible, particularly in those areas in healthcare that have been and believed to be impossible. And uh, come join us in, in the journey. Probably the easiest way to get in touch with, with me is through LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn, Chris Gibbons, MD, MPH. And I'm also on Twitter, M-C-G-I-B-B-O-N-S. And uh, those are probably the easiest ways to get in touch with me. Outstanding. Dr. Gibbons, really appreciate your, your insights and your leadership leadership and uh, looking forward to, to continuing the conversation another time. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. HP's Population Health IT solutions are creating convenience and choice for providers and patients. Building on over 50 years in health and life sciences, HP is delivering end-to-end -end solutions for remote care and in-home monitoring. Supporting the transition to home, chronic disease management, medication adherence, health education, and remote clinical trial monitoring. HP Fit Solutions, your single source for cost-effective, technology-enabled, remote care solutions and financing services. Visit www.hp.com go slash healthcare. That's www.hp.com go slash healthcare for more details.